morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending where you are in the world. Welcome to Smart Remarks, Howard States. I'm Doug Howard. With me today is Dr. Christian Smart, my co-host. Hello. Dr. Dr. Amrit, help me out here, Amrit. Yep, I'm Dr. Amritpal Singh Agar. Okay, I had I had your, your your bio up here and I put it on the wrong slide here. So bear with me a second. No worries. Okay. In the meantime, you can see the cover of my book. It's backwards now, I guess. <laughs> okay. I guess I'm backwards. Hmm. I don't know how you correct for that. I, I, no, you can definitely see it. I, I, I think it corrects itself. Oh, you can't? Okay, so yeah. it fixes itself. Yeah. Awesome. Oh, okay. Yeah. So my author arrived. copies arrived last Thursday. So okay, well let me let me get a little read here on on Dr. Amrit Paul Singh Agar's uh, bio here, and uh, then I'll go into Christian and into me. So Amrit Paul is currently the cost and estimating manager for the Canal and River Trust. I'm excited to talk about that. They are the custodians of 2,000 miles of English and Welsh inland waterways, which were a key driver in the Industrial Revolution. He's also the host of the podcast, The Cost of Everything. He holds a doctorate in cost modeling, which he received from Loughborough University, and holds a master's in nuclear engineering from the University of Birmingham. He's worked for more than 10 years in nuclear and water industries. He's a keen runner and hopes to run a few marathons after the lockdown. He loves watching, playing soccer and cricket, following the Liverpool, excuse me, Liverpool Football Club and the West Indies cricket team, respectively. My co-host, Dr. Christian Smart, is the chief data scientist with Gallarath Federal. He supports NASA and the DOD in a variety of analytics for cutting edge programs, including nuclear propulsion and hypersonic weapon systems. Previously, he was the cost director for the Missile Defense Agency, the MDA, for several years, where he led a team of over 100 estimators. He's written extensively about cost modeling, parametric cost modeling, risk analysis, and has won numerous best papers at cost estimating conferences. His book, published by McGraw-Hill, entitled Solving for Project Risk Management, Understanding the Critical Role of Uncertainty in Product Project Management, hits bookstores November 3rd. Christian, why don't you hold that up for us, please? Thank you. Uh, Christian has a BS in BA degrees in math and econ from Jacksonville State and a PhD in applied mathematics from the University of Alabama in Huntsville. He, his wife, and his young son reside in Nashville, Tennessee. And me, I'm your host. I'm uh, Doug Howarth. I founded and run my own company, which we call Me Inc., M E E Inc., and we named it after multidimensional economics, or me with one E, the new field that I discover. And in that field, what we do is we compare cost, value, and demand across four more dimensions. So along with two others in my company, I was awarded US patent 10,402,838 for multivariable regression analysis. It's the world's first software designed to break markets into four dimensions. So we work for NASA, Lockheed, United Technologies, Northrop Grumman, and Raytheon. So I've gone to many of the same Christ conferences the Christian attends, not nearly as prolific in winning titles there, but I've gotten a couple of awards there too. 
And me, I enjoy running, lifting weights, and travel. I live in Southern California with my wife, and I have a bachelor's degree in economics from Washington State University. So with that, gentlemen, again, thank you for coming both today to our podcast. I'm uh, very excited to introduce our guest. Amrit, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and um, your, your upcoming thoughts about the Merseyside Derby? Because I, I know that uh, Liverpool won the title last year in almost record fashion. And I looked at the table and just discovered that they're actually behind Everton. Yeah, and so this is yeah. a very important game coming up. So maybe you could talk about that. It's a very important game. Um, gosh, where do you start with the Merseyside derby? Um, <laughs> it's it's actually quite a friendly derby compared with a lot of them. I think Liverpool and Manchester United have the real kind of rivalry up there, like right. a lot of a lot of anger around that rivalry. Mm-hmm. But um, Everton haven't actually beaten Liverpool in the in the league. I think for ten years. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's been very one sided, um, but this season. Everton, so they got a new manager last year, very internationally renowned manager, Carlo Ancelotti, who's who's an Italian legend. Um, And he has brought them to the top of the league. And Liverpool actually had a very shock result last week. They lost 7-2 to Aston Villa, who have Ah, only just come up in the league. Um, And uh, and it it was a massive shock. Liverpool don't get beaten, and they all of a sudden got absolutely trashed by uh, by by someone who would generally be considered um, a, a lower a lower team a team that's potentially going to be relegated so right. i know i know americans don't really do the whole relegation promotion thing no so, no no but uh, for those who don't I, i'm familiar with it i'm well, why don't you describe relegation for our, our listeners that may not know about it so uh, yeah, the football league. It, well, it actually consists of a tiered system. So you have the Premier League, which is the top top twenty teams in England, um, and then you have another league, which is the Championship. Below that, which is another twenty teams, I think, or twenty four. And then there's another league, and another league below that, and another league, and then you go to the non-league, and there's hundreds of teams in the non-league, and they play regionally. But you can theoretically get promoted all the way up. So mm-hmm. what happens is you play each team. Uh, twice in a year mm-hmm. and then the the bottom three teams in that league by points you accumulate points throughout the year they get relegated down to the league below and the three teams below who finish in the top get promoted to the league the top league above wow. and it's uh, and there's but there's a massive there's 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 very very there's quite a, a huge apparently a power grab at the moment where the top six teams are saying let's reduce the league to 18 ah. um, it's, it's very very influenced by money um, the Premier League is the most lucrative league in the world. Right. Um, very, very rich league. Um, and uh, yeah, I'd say it's nothing. It's probably nothing in comparison to the NFL. Just the the the, the, the sheer value of every team in the NFL. Is it is it thirty six teams in the NFL or thirty two? Thirty two, I think. Thirty two. Yeah. And and you, yeah, the, the the kind of contracts there for for media rights and everything. I, I think um, it pales in comparison, but. But yeah, this is a, it's a very strange time. I think everything's been really influenced by COVID and okay. not having not having teams in in the in the stadium yes. um, because there's just a blanket ban in the in the UK at the moment. No no mm-hmm. fans allowed in the stadiums, mm-hmm. um, and you really sense that influence because it was almost like Liverpool had an extra player, right? Um, so they'd play Barcelona and they they had this extra player behind them and they would win. 
uh, out of nowhere a team against teams that they shouldn't win against and it, do, it there, there's an end at the Liverpool of the Liverpool ground called the cop and and that's where it's basically like the it is the the extra player and no opposition likes to go to Liverpool it's like a fortress right. yeah. and it's just it's just amazing um i think i think this year is going to be totally strange um but then i think i think it's uh, it's quite unpredictable anyway the, the, the league right. um it's not like most leagues you know who's going to win or right. pretty much the, the top two teams but in England, I mean, five years, I think it was about four years ago, um, and I happened to be in New York on my honeymoon four years ago when um, Leicester won the league. Oh, yeah, I remember that, yes. And and they were 5,000 to one at the start of the season. <laughs> Someone put a bet on them, and uh, and now the, the bookies don't put 5,000 to one on any, on any team anymore. <laughs> so, so, yeah, but, um, yeah, I think I think it's going to be a very close game, um, but I'm... I'm Liverpool are bringing a few players back who had been um, put in isolation because they had COVID. Mm-hmm. So uh, and they're 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 their main one's their main goal scorer and one's their new creative playmaker. Mm. So so it's uh, I think I think Liverpool still have it just over Everton. Okay. I, don't, I don't think right. Everton are going to break their duck. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about the um, your. Well, first of all, I find it fascinating. You were working as a as a nuclear engineer, and then you moved over to the canals. Um, I know that's from my reading on it, and actually being on some canals. There's a, a, a massive amount of technology that's in canals that people had to invent as they went along. And I know some of the canals in in uh, Western England, in Eastern Wales, are on aqueducts, and so you've got to get the water up very very high you've got to keep the canals flowing it and and now with covid i i don't know if you have restrictions on how many boats you can run on the canal but tell us a little bit about what it is what your job is like day to day and what you do and first of all tell us how you came to it too by the way how did you manage to decide to do that after maybe building a nuclear reactor and going to a, a five knot mile per hour boat and making sure it can go through a lock <laughs> yeah like, as you, you can imagine a totally different um pace of life really isn't it um i um yeah i mean like you like you mentioned at the start my background is is nuclear um i finished my um masters in 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 nuclear engineering and then went into industry straight away so Mm -hmm. i spent three months working at sellafield um which is where the original sort of uh, weapons development program was in the uk Mm -hmm. um, which was developed quite rapidly um and I was working in uh, radiometrics, so very, very nuclear, very, mm-hmm. very much uh, nuclear science and engineering. Then I did. I was doing a graduate program. I spent two years working in nuclear power plants in in uh, maintenance uh, on a graduate program, going to to loads of different sites and um, experiencing very strange situations, le- having to learn a million different alarms oh. um, in in your induction, and and people saying if this alarm goes even though everyone says hold the handrail when you're when you're supposed to walk down the stairs it's like if this alarm goes run so uh, so yeah yeah, i'm not gonna i'm not gonna argue with the the safety guy when he says that um i think the so after that i spent time in decommissioning i spent time um you know doing project management type stuff and then the there was an opportunity to, to to work on small modular reactors and to do my doctorate at the same time and I felt like that was a 
was a good challenge. Um, it was a sideways step into cost estimating, mm-hmm. which um, you know, you you kind of interact with the interface with it when you're when you're in when you're in engineering and when you're in project mm-hmm. management, but you're not directly involved in it. And then you're in it and you realize that okay, this is actually quite a big challenge. And I, I spent, you know, I spent four years doing uh, my doctorate alongside working, wow. developing the uh, developing the small modular reactor, had fantastic opportunities to um, contribute at, um, you know, major international conferences. Um, and also, uh, you know, I did some consultancy work for the uh, International Atomic Energy Agency. So mm-hmm. um, managed to get myself over to Vienna a few times, which is an amazing city. Uh, I love Vienna. If I think I think if at some point I go back into nuclear, it would be good to, to go and work at the IAEA in Vienna okay. at some point. So, um, but yeah, fantastic place. And, um, you know, all, 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 all kind of, uh, you know, all, everything was pointing towards, okay, long career in nuclear. Um, I think one major shift was, I'd say, you know, I like to go running a lot. And when I was, uh, when I was going out running, I would run down the canals yes. and, um, it just so happened that after I sat my um, Viva, um, so I had my examination for my um, my my uh, doctorate, there were still questions about what my future contract might look like at, at the company I, I was working in. Uh, you know, I was still umming and ahhing. And then uh, I just so happened to be running the canals to, to think about it. And I saw a sign for the Canal River Trust never saw seen that before in my life um I, i've lived around canals my whole life i'm mm-hmm. i'm from i'm from a place that's just out, outside of birmingham called smethwick which was the heart of industrial revolution um it's where sort of thomas telford and 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 all the engineers there um you know i i i live probably about five minutes away from where the original steam engines were built um in in so in the soho factory and um and around there so a a lot of growing up first school trip was down to the canals um you know so i've I've had long a long-standing relationship with them um but i had never seen the canal river trust logo before i thought i'd go and check it out at home and and it was really odd i just so happened to scroll over the vacancies thing not thinking I would actually go work for the Canal River Trust. And the top thing on there was cost and estimating manager. And I had, and I had a look through the spec and I was like, I've done, I've done all that. So um, it was a really strange situation. So it was all this, all within the space of a week. Um, they offered me an interview, I had an interview at a consultancy. And I also had an interview within, um, within Rolls-Royce where I was working just to discuss my, my future. And it was one day after the other. And the middle day was the Canal River Trust. Um, I got an, I got a call back from the Canal River Trust the next day, um, just just on my way into work um, to discuss my future at, at Rolls Royce, um, and, and sort of what they were offering was was amazing. And I think part of the interview process, I had to kind of discuss what what it was, uh, why I wanted to work for the trust, and I I went back and investigated everything about what what they did, mm-hmm. what the challenges were. And really, the challenges aren't that dissimilar to to nuclear or any other industry. Mm. But what I found was um, there, there was an extra dimension to it the the socio environmental aspect mm-hmm. of what the canals are trying to be. So in the past, it's been it was about the industrial revolution, and actually they were outdated before they were even completed. 
you know they they would a lot of them were dug out by hand by mm. by you know irish labor irish laborers and uh, and others and and um it took it took a long time and and you know by the time they were going through it uh the the railways had been developed and yeah. they started um you know steaming through and there were a lot of um land purchases by railway companies who then converted semi-complete canals into railways mm. so i i learned a lot about the history of them uh in in that process of preparing and then really just understanding about uh the canal river trust is a charity now so it was there was a period of time where the canals were developed there was a period of time before uh, world war ii where they were just abandoned there was there was nothing there was nothing happening with them a lot of them had basically just um had uh, growth occurred so there was no water in them anymore mm. uh, it was just all all gone and then sort of 1940s to 1950s there's a little bit of a renaissance where you had hobbyists boaters who wanted to regrow it and turn it into something again and it's actually the hobbyists who actually started to dig them back up and um, and and sort of reclaim them and then uh, what beyond that point sort of 1950s um, the british waterways board was formed and the british waterways board um, i think it was a government organization it operated until sort of 20 uh, 20- 12 i think 2013 mm-hmm. and and it was because it was government funded it go up and down in funding it was never about let's bring them up to a modern standard it was let's keep them ticking over let's make sure the reservoirs are okay everything is up to scratch but let's not spend too much on them mm-hmm. and it was a very traditional old school quite organization like most government organizations very much uh, hierarchical very structured very rigid and then um then the uh, the the current government um, who've been in power for a while now um they turned they they basically created this quango which is the canal river trust and it was it became a charity mm-hmm. um and that charity um now has the remit of making the waterways accessible to as many people as possible mm-hmm. as a as a source of health and well-being and as a That's as great. a way of getting back That's to great. nature and and i think the amazing thing about it is since lockdown uh, you know i joined i joined the trust a few years back mm-hmm. and no one had heard of the canal river trust out of anyone that i i talked to and and i knew um you know since then i've been involved with quite a few charities in my spare time to encourage uh communities that are underrepresented um that these sort of blue green ribbons go through these inner city communities mm-hmm. um and they 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 don't really know about it um you know i think you know some of the statistics might be wrong on this but i think 60% of people in england live within a mile of 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 the inland waterways wow so it's it's accessible to a lot of people it goes through london birmingham leeds manchester bath uh, you know every major city in 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 england and then you have old heritage um sites that people don't really know about like the uh, pontyskillet aqueduct um which is in wales which is this mm-hmm. huge aqueduct it's, it's it's amazing and it's a world heritage site and um and it's just it just looks incredible so i think my I think, parents have a picture of themselves floating on one of the long boats over that aqueduct taking absolutely amazing yeah. Yeah. It's terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely terrifying. 80 feet over the ground or something crazy like oh, yeah. that. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. And um and and you know that 
you think of the engineering that's gone in to build oh. these things. And um, I think for me, so, so my role is, uh, you know, within cost and estimating is on the asset maintenance side of things and asset improvement. So we have uh, 70 plus reservoirs. We have, uh, you know, like I mentioned, thousands of miles of, of, um, of canals and the associated towpaths and bridges. So there's a lot to manage. Um, a relatively small team when you consider it as a national infrastructure um, and uh, some, some very individual challenges as well where things weren't made to any kind of standard. There's no mm -hmm. engineering drawings for a lot of these things. You know, mm -hmm. engineering drawings didn't even come about till 150 years after these had started being built. Um, you know, massive challenges in terms of what's been put uh, in and around mm -hmm. the canals since. So, you know, optical fiber, various utilities, you know, they've, they've all been planted into uh, underneath the beds of these and into the towpaths. And, you know, sometimes we're like, we wonder what's actually under there and there's a potential risk that we're going to actually hit something a lot of the time, you know, and, and, you know, may, let me just stop you for a second here, Amber, because I, I know what a towpath is because I've run on canals before we, we, and, um, but people may not understand how far back the, the canals go and what a towpath means and why we needed to have one hmm. and what, what changed it and how the technology changed over the, over time. Maybe you could explain that to the, to our listeners here. Yeah, so so this is before um, before the engine, basically. Mm -hmm. So so these things were were before the engine even existed. Wow. Um, so the the water waterways were seen as a way of getting things from one part of the country to to another. So materials and goods and um, you know getting pottery and things out of Stoke up to Liverpool and then across on boats to America and things like that. So, um, so the water was a, was a way of transporting, but you needed something to be able to pull it along or push it along. And they used horses. So horses were actually used to tow the, to tow <laughs> these boats. So they were called tow paths that went alongside the canals because horses were literally towing the boats. And, and, and there are some very, very clever engineering that, that went around it. So the towpaths were designed to be able to hold horses. Um, but at various- a, oh, Excuse me, if you hit a, a tunnel, because I know you had to make a few tunnels there, then you had to go from a towpath to a different technique. Why don't you explain what that yeah. might be? Yeah, and um, I don't know if you have the saying in America called legging it. We uh, do, but it, it means something different than it means in 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 uh, England. So why don't you just why don't you describe what legging it means in England? Because I, I know, but I'm not sure all of our listeners might know what that means. Well, in relation to the canals, I think right. I, I could I could talk it for ages about different English um, phrases that we have that yeah. might be slightly different. But but when you were actually in in the tunnels, there are obviously no towpaths either side. Mm -hmm. So what they would do, and it was dark as well, it was probably pitch black, um, unless you paid for an oil lamp or you had something like that. And some of these tunnels do go on for miles. Um, and this is something I did when I was on my first school trip, actually. What you would end up doing is um, lying down on your back on the side <laughs> and literally putting your legs against the wall and walking along the wall and bringing the boat with you. So that was called legging it. So you literally do that. And uh, yeah, that's quite an experience in the dark as well. Um, but yeah, it's, um, oh, we lost Chris. Um, yeah, let me have to readmit him here. The, 
see if he comes back. Yeah, we lost Christian. Yeah, so I, I thought that you are lying on your back and pushing on the ceiling, but it's the it's the side walls that you're yeah, doing. Yeah, yeah, right. it's the sides, it's the sides, which is um which is yeah, it's it's not Sorry, something we do now. Off. Yeah, we lost you there for a second. We have you back now. Can you hear us okay, Christian? Yes. Okay, good. So can you hear me okay? Yeah. Yes. Yep. I was explaining legging it to uh to our listeners here, which I think is fascinating. So Yeah, it. so so um, you know, we've got you know, a lot of these things are I'd say in the past slightly, but we have, uh, you know, we have boaters who go on boating cruises or permanently reside on the canals. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got people who walk their dog, people who run, uh, you know, people in inner city. So, so we go through um, the docks in London and we've got massive stretches of canals in London. You know, mm -hmm. the Regents, Regents Canal is a, is a lovely part of um, London. And you just think how close this is to the financial district, to the very, um, business hubs in London and there's there's people there are people there who don't exercise as much as they can don't relax mm -hmm. as much as they can and just those few moments of relief that you can get on your lunch break walking down the canals middle of sunshine there's an area there called Little Venice and it's just mm -hmm. it's very uh, idyllic in the middle of London and what we're trying to promote is um, is that sense of well-being that you can get by being near water and, and that's a very crucial part and i think something that we it would be really interesting to discuss which is how how do you value that i mean we don't make a profit we don't sell things we don't we don't sell the product uh, the product that we're selling is the experience of being on the waterways mm -hmm. and when we're making our decisions as to you know you have various options when you can maintain something you know do we do we do a patchwork repair on it do we um, do an extensive repair on it do we replace it and all these things require an investment and a decision to be made on that investment and actually how do you then value what what that's going to be because if someone did a value prop what the value proposition was of the canals 250 years ago mm -hmm. it's nothing is no it's nowhere near what they would propose uh, for what it is now because we're not transporting goods anymore well you are transporting people i imagine you could um you could work out some sort of uh, thoroughfare charge that you would have. I mean, I, I remember it was going down the the Danube and the and the Rhine, and, and if you go to the a part of well, several parts of both rivers, and then of course the but not the canal that connects them both, the Main Rhine Canal, the fiefdoms and the the, the uh, kings and queens and princes that used to populate the those parts of Germany and Austria used to put chains across the river and, and stop the boats, as I'm sure you're aware. And so they would charge people a toll. So I think there is a historic precedent for the charges that have been levied on the river. Right now, you don't levy charges on the users of the river? Um, yeah, so there's um, boating licenses. So ah, boaters okay. do have to get licenses, um, unless you're a sort of pleasure cruiser and you, and you mm -hmm. hire a boat, then that's, I think it's incorporated into the higher charge from right. whoever's whoever's um whichever the vet whoever the vendor is um but but really it's more it's more what other it's it's sort of social cost benefit so sure. right. so by by us improving a certain section of the canal what benefit does that provide so for example um with the with the whole with covid we noticed a lot more people using the the towpaths or the walkways mm. Um, because they were close yeah. to where they lived and they could access them without, you know, getting into any issues of not being in isolation and 
sticking to within a certain distance of their homes, which is which is what it was like in the earlier part of the lockdown. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's been a lot more discussion about, OK, we want to open these towpaths and convert them into uh, some more cycle lanes. So so a lot of the towpaths were have been over the past 10, 15 years turned into cycleways um, mm. to, because they do. You know, you can get from one one town to another town uh, via the slow ways without ever coming up to the roads. And it's a lot safer. And it's a lot shouldn't be quicker because you shouldn't be riding them there very quickly because you've got towpath <laughs> users as well. Um, but but so there's a benefit there to society there's a benefit there to the economy of people people's health but also being um accessible places that people can get from a to b um in in a slightly different way um but we have a a certain limit that we can spend in any one year really Mm -hmm. on as part of our budget our expenditure budget budget and we do have very big projects sometimes um but we tend to have hundreds of smaller projects and it's almost like the impact of one or two projects going over budget or over schedule can have a knock-on impact on three or four projects and if you if you if you magnify that impact then there has to be some almost tough decisions made as to which projects are allowed and which projects shouldn't be i'm sure uh, christian would have something to say with respect to portfolio effects on that right christian yeah, so there's yes, yeah, one of the things and something you have a chance to do in your your job, Amrit, is do portfolio uncertainty analysis and see what the overall risk analysis. Because most organizations do not do that, mm. so they, they, they many organizations do not do quantitative risk analysis at all. But even those that do, they typically uh, will will do it for a single project at a time. So you have a risk for this project, risk for that project. You understand how how that works, but you won't understand the overall interactions and, and what the overall organization risk is. And without really understanding that, um, you're subject to portfolio level problems, which, you know, you won't have reserves at the portfolio level that will, and, you know, I guess it's like you're seeing this where you'll you'll hit funding constraints, which leads to schedule slips, which leads to cost growth. And that impacts, it has a whole domino effect. Mm. And so if be careful about that. So that's one thing to talk about is, um, you know, the, the need for that portfolio level analysis, uh, there's two things that projects often do is they say, well, you know, if we fund everything to a 50% confidence level, you know, 50th percentile median, then at the overall level, we'll have some diversification benefits, just like when you buy stocks. But unless you actually do the analysis, you, you can't uh, make sure that's really the case because it's not like stocks. There's, there is no like the stocks and if you're not making a leverage investment there is a limited downside you can lose what you invest but there is an unlimited upside you know imagine buying apple stock 20 years ago and how much money you'd have if you bought a lot of apple stock 20 years ago it's like your 5000 to 1 bet on on uh, lester um so you know so there's so you don't get the diversification benefits because you have a limited upside you, in many cases like with canal and river trust you have a very valuable benefit but it's somewhat qualitative and it's hard to put a value on it and that's relatively fixed but the cost and schedule growth can can uh, can be very bad on the downside so limited upside very bad downside so diversification you have to be very careful about the other issue is when you start new projects and organization you have to be careful and look at the longer term impacts across the portfolio you know building up sand charts and looking how things work many organizations and i've seen this happen in my work They'll say, okay, well, we mean this year, let's give this project a little seed money to get started. 
you know, but that's like conceiving a child, but then not having the funds to raise it. Right. So mm -hmm. conceiving a child's cheap, raising a child's expensive. You know, another thing you like to do some upfront planning and a little bit of planning goes a long way in terms of saving money. Yes, Doug. Mm -hmm. I was going to say another thing you might consider, Amrit, is that it's very likely the case that uh, that you've got a demand curve for your funds. Like we've seen demand curves fund form in every mature market. So this is the Dow 30 from, that's the, the top 30 stocks here in the United States from the 20th of June of this year. These oh, little wow. dots here, each one of these dots represents one of the stocks. So yep, the yep. horizontal axis is their volume and the vertical axis is the price. And, and what you see happening where that black line is, is that what we call a demand frontier forms in every mature market. So if you look at this, this kind of arrangement, say in fighter, bomber and attack aircraft, which Christian and I have studied very deeply, it works out that the, the demand frontier for fighter, bomber and attack aircraft is very highly correlated and is very stable. Over 20 years, the slope has changed less than two and a half percent and the intercepts changed by 1%. And so what happens, demand changes every time somebody puts a new plane into the inventory, the demand has changed. But at the limit, the thing hasn't changed very much. So what you can do, what we've done for other industries is you actually plot this in a year and a year, a year over year fashion to see if your frontier is stable or if it's moving. Is it mm -hmm. contracting, stable, or is it expanding? It works out that uh, then you can also plot the the demand for something like that against the value. And I'll, I'll, while you guys are talking, I'll, show, I'll assemble this so we can look at a four-dimensional system that might be of interest to you. What are the dots on the, uh, on the demand frontier? What are those, like three dots on the frontier? What are those uh, At this time, it was um, Boeing, Apple, and Microsoft were on the frontier. Oh, okay, gotcha, uh, yeah. gotcha. Those all make sense. Um, so I'm right now, yeah, so it's, your, your background in nuclear is very interesting. You know, there is there are some cross connections uh, in the cost estimating profession. Um, the basically the top DoD uh, senior executive in the cost estimating profession has a PhD in nuclear engineering. Right. If you're aware of that, uh, Rick Burke, Dr. Rick Burke, um, he is uh, the um, office of the Secretary of Defense for cost assessment and program evaluation. And he's the head of the cost assessment side. So wow. I thought that's an interesting uh, connection. Um, have you, uh, do you have any experience with doing probabilistic risk assessments as, as part of your nuclear work? Uh, yes, I, I did. Uh, well, I did it for two different things really. One was in, um, I did, I started to, to do a bit of, um, probabilistic risk assessment on uh, the cost of um, of or the schedule the impact on schedule um, for from changing from a uh, you know a traditional stick-built nuclear power plant to a modular nuclear okay. power plant and understanding what the key drivers were uh, the big challenge there was having enough detail on understanding um the dependencies between each stage um, and the interfaces when it came to the modules. So you would need to have a certain level of definition um, okay. to understand where those interfaces would need to be. Um, but it has been used uh, quite extensively, actually, I think in, in schedule, understanding the schedule cost of um, 
of nuclear power plants traditionally as well. Okay. Um, I think one of the problems you got is um, with correlation effects in um, yes. in understanding, you know, those dependencies. If you just if you just stick on the on the technical construction side of 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 that, then you're going to be completely missing out on the uh, the what would be traditionally considered considered as external dependencies, which are mm-hmm. uh, supply chain effects and you know your sort of unknown unknowns if you can account for weather events and things like that as well. Right. Um, you know, I don't think anyone can predict. Well, can you predict uh, having an incompetent supplier? Um, <laughs> well, you... so well, my, my argument would be that uh, Norm Augustine and Augustine's laws, you know, he said that you can't really predict specific unknown unknowns, but in the aggregate, you can predict them just like we do mortality statistics for actuarial tables. So you can kind of see how they, you know, what, what the overall likelihood of them occurring is. So you could, you can calibrate to the historical cost and schedule growth history. And, and, and that would kind of tell you how many unknown unknowns would you expect to happen given what's happened in the past. I think, I think that's half the battle is being able to understand what, what wasn't knowable at the time and, and, right. and, and being able to categorize those. So, you know, within the trust, and I think this goes back to that portfolio level analysis of the program and understanding what are the likely causes of cost and schedule growth within those. It's, right. it's in which dimension are you looking at that? Because if you look at it from a programmatic perspective, you can look at schedule and look at what caused the variances um, right. in, in, in your schedule at a project level um, and then at asset level because we've got various different asset categories and then you can have a look overall at the program what was what was the driver of, of schedule growth was there one key event that happened in the right. in the in the business year now if there are events that happen consistently so for example um, with climate change happening we're, we're seeing much more severe weather events in certain parts of the countries country yes. um and that means okay consistently we know we're getting uh we're getting this uh, now it's become a known unknown I, I guess you would say but whereabouts that would have an impact so you have the weather event but it might not necessarily cause any adverse damage if it does cause adverse damage that can be a significant proportion of uh emergency funding required right. to, to to deal with that immediate problem uh, because w- one of the kpis that we would be measured against is keeping the canals open uh, and and you know obviously a, a canal being knocked over or you know even a tree being knocked over on the line can can ha- can have that effect so sure. we need to immediate response you, you know so understanding the cost impact and the impact of the weather on a specific area is is a major challenge now being able to model yes. that and predict that in the future is equally a challenge so it almost then becomes a question of okay we know we've got this dependency we know we've got okay a weather event happens we've got a probability probability or a likelihood of an event causing a certain amount of damage right it's how how do you maintain that as a you know a predictable variable 
how much of that do you account for? Okay, we're going to have a contingency fund that allows for that versus, okay, we want certainty in our program. Therefore, we're going to account for, okay, it caused, there were three events. It caused, this is the severity of the event in terms of expenditure. We had to produce, we had to provide for emergency repairs and, and things like that. Therefore, we would predict three of these events a year. Right. And then and then you would almost have that contingency against that. So if you look at it purely from 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 one dimension like that, it could be accounted for. Um, but then if you account for that, that means there's two or three other projects that you're not going to be doing because you're 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 predicting that the unknown event is likely to happen. Now that that you know if you don't want to hamstring yourself that's probably what you have to do and there's only so many projects you can actually carry out in a year isn't there so um so yeah i think i think that's something that i've i've been toying with but but how to formalize that um and not just make it about you know it's it's categorizing them and ca- characterizing the various risks, risks as well i think I, I i think there's a very interesting um there's a very interesting bit of work to be done there um, in terms of, you know, climate change is going to have a massive impact for, for us. Yes. Weather, yeah, weather is, uh, weather impacts are, are difficult because this is where, to some extent, you're trying to use the past. You know, as Shakespeare said in The Tempest, what's past is prologue. But in weather, in the current situation, is somewhat unprecedented, right? There's, there's really, what's past is not exactly prologue because climate change and rising sea levels and um, weather is getting more extreme. That's difficult to uh, that's, that's that's difficult to use the past to predict the future. You know, some of the there's some people that work in the catastro- catastrophic risk uh, insurance industry that have done modeling like that. The um, weather is subject to extreme risk, so you'll you'll have some relatively mild events, and you'll have some some really really bad event in the United States. You know, be a hurricane. Um, and so, you know, there's something called extreme value theory that you can take a look at to kind of see, um, you know, how to, how to model those extremes and how mm-hmm. to look at what is the probability of a really extreme weather event in England. I don't know. Um, I mean, I guess the United Kingdom, and they're, they're, are you subject to hurricanes or what, no. what are the really extreme no. weather events that you have in the UK yeah, flooding? Yeah. They, they would be they would be so mild compared to to what's experienced in in sort of mainland america and, and on okay. the coast and you know we don't we don't have anything you, i think it's just being from an island we just complain about the weather every day so it just becomes <laughs> such a big thing but um i think flooding flooding is the most um you know we we have had actually noticeably over the summer quite some some quite severe storms that affect the whole country really mm-hmm. um but they're not so severe that they've caused um, massive amounts of damage this year. But, you know, it has been noticeable that in the last 10 years, um, and again, you know, this is a very small sample, isn't it? And it's, it's subjective um, when you don't take it into the context of hundreds of years of experience. Um, but we've got um, much milder winters, much more severe uh, storms, especially in the summer, um, and some extreme downpours at very specific parts of the the year um, that the traditional infrastructure is not designed to hold. Um, so you've got the Environment Agency building flood defences everywhere. Um, 
people are suffering with that with them when there are a lot more uh, there are a lot more uninsurable areas and um, you get you get you get doomsday um, sort of uh, I guess people doomsday saying that you know the the new coastline is going to be along the south of Birmingham at some point so mm-hmm. so by, by oh, wow. yeah. Birmingham so and Birmingham's in the Midlands so it's in the middle of the country um, but I guess it's, it's the same thing that they say with LA and, and and things like that isn't it but we're we're obviously on a much smaller scale but um, sure. the, the the cost of uh, of of these events happening more frequently is something that um, there probably isn't the um, funding for and there's, there's it's the resi- it's the resilience factor isn't it it's it's how do you make infrastructure in the future to be more resilient um, and, and that's something that we're we're competing with at the moment as well so sure and, and the challenge is you know you're if you say you try to plan for some relatively extreme events they're going to be probably likely you're going to be several years in a row where you have more funding and so management will be getting somewhat antsy and say well we've we could have started three or four more projects by now but then you, the, the fifth year comes and you're you wind up needing it so um that's that's the tricky part right so yeah you got to keep your stakeholders happy and um you know while also having a level of conservatism in your um it, it, you know it's, it's that old adage of it's better to have more money than less isn't it when you're yes. when you're planning for these projects but um yeah I, I'd, I'd say i'd say for us this the, the the single biggest risk in the past was that our infrastructure was um was under was under maintained for such a long period of time that it's mm-hmm. you know it's it's almost like you know they uncovered the very again hyperbole but it's almost like they uncovered the pyramids and then started to use them again um <laughs> yeah. but they just they just weren't <laughs> they weren't fit for purpose and they were being repurposed um sure. but but now we're, we're we're coming to to stages it's you know a lot of uh, a lot more funding's going into making these things more resilient so um increase the the asset condition greater than what it would where it would have been in the past um such that it can it can cope with um it's 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 a longer life cycle for these for these um assets than they would have previously been in, uh, developed for so you know it's it's a totally different challenge to nuclear to be honest um you know, uh, or having said that, there were there, there have been certain concepts that I've been trying to to look at how we how we promote those concepts from nuclear and how we would maintain a nuclear power plant to how we would maintain a, a canal. Um, you know, and then uh, some of these I think they're uh, they're they're very sort of known concepts within aero defense and nuclear, but less so in other infrastructure. And I think it is that whole um safety value um and and maintaining the output of what what they need to deliver um and but then again the you you can't spend uh you know millions of pounds on planning which is what we could do in nuclear um especially for because of the value of producing electricity or like we've discussed before the value of making sure that that um defense is available when it needs to be available so you know best laid plans and everything and uh, we, right. we just yeah i think i think what's interesting is how how the cost of uh, planning um might drop significantly in the future because of uh, using 
various sources of data that are much more accessible now and better processing power um, and being able to use that and utilize that in the future. Um, yes, yes, that can definitely help. Yes, um, automation can definitely help with that. I think that will definitely help us because, um, yeah, the the manpower to do that, to do the way the way I used to do it when I was at nuclear power plant, uh, you know, when we are planning for an outage, um, a lot of money goes into planning for the outage. And then you spend a hell of a lot of money to make sure that those um, what you have planned in those few weeks where the plant is shut down and you're losing a million pounds a day from not having generated electricity, um, you make sure that that work's done. Uh, whereas I think it's probably cultural as well when you're not on, when you're on sort of non-critical infrastructure, it's not as, um, it's not as go, go, go almost. It's not as right. um, making sure you're on the ball. And, you know, if it, if it doesn't happen on one day, then it'll happen on another day. And that's how, that's how slips happen in schedule, isn't it? So, um, yes. My apologies. I tried to assemble this model, and, and there were some pieces that were missing, so I, I couldn't show you the the uh, 4D model um, in its physical state. But basically, what what we've discovered here, Amrit, is that that every element in demand has a matching value in a matching point in what we call value space. So, for example, with electric cars, there's a certain amount of horsepower and, and range that these cars have. If you take the combination of horsepower and range in 2013, there was a there's a surface that describes the value of the car based on the horsepower and range. At the same time, that there was that point over here on the on the demand plane that's describing its its demand. Hmm. In other words, a certain quantity and price that the thing will absorb at that point in time. And so, the demand plane is the demand frontier is limiting how much is being spent at a certain point in time. And the value plane is reflecting how people are paying for it. So what's interesting in a, in a canal such as your own is um, imagine the canal at a certain, at certain points. Cause I know you, when you pull into a certain into towns and pubs and things like that, the width of the canal increases, right? Yeah. Yeah. You do have, well, you've got specific areas where, where it does, it does increase in width. Yeah. Yeah. So there's there's going to be a certain value to the canal going um, a certain distance with the, the the normal width, and then there's going to be a, a different value when the, the 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 value of the the width of the canal doubles or more. That that's that's something you could characterize. Potentially, you can actually see how you spent for it and how you, how you could value something like that. If some if you were to charge tourists, say on on their trip, you could maybe charge more money, say going through an area in which they they had extra access to the ultra wide places. See, and I think it's um, it is sort of where it crosses into. So, so these elements of econometrics do cross over into marketing as well. So, there's an element of yes. will, willingness to pay. So, you might not necessarily. So, so for us, there's 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 no ambition really to charge people for using right. these because they are they are public rights of way in essence for us. They they are people you know and this hasn't always been the case you know to you go back 20 30 years and and there were big bars saying do not enter private land mm. um and and that, that's all been removed and it's been opened up um and i think like you say there's very there's very valuable public uh you know moorings that are available where people right. boaters can have permanent moorings as well 
um, and there's permanent moorings in, in, you know, in the centre of Oxford. So we've got the Oxford Canal, which is the oldest, one of the oldest canals in England. Um, and that goes, you know, within uh, a two minute walk of the, the Oxford's business school and within, you know, where, where all the spires are and, all, wow. you know, the, the Radcliffe, Radcliffe Observatory and everything. So, um, you know, there's very valuable moorings there and in the centre of London, centre of Birmingham, like I said before, and boaters have paid a level of premium for that. And um, I think that the challenge is really not not necessarily on charging people so that we break even or anything like that, but actually right. understanding actually what is the value in us to society? Mm-hmm. Um, what is the value to society in us doing this work? So what's the invest, what's the business case in us doing this work? And and you know the 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 British government's tried things like so we're, there's a, there's something called the Green Book, the Government Green Book of Appraisal, mm-hmm. and there's there's a very solid number of this is your solid number financial business case, and then there's a fuzzy number on the side which is qualitative, um, which is you know this is you know um, number of trees saved or you know whatever it is. Right. Um, I, I've, I've forgotten what it is actually now, um, but I know that the Environment Agency, for example, are now putting a lot of effort into uh, a cost and carbon um, estimating approach so you know as well as when they're doing the maintenance works they're planning for uh, as part of the decision making criteria it's not just on uh, estimating the cost of the job but right. also within that criteria which of them is the most has the most um, embodied carbon for the for the decisions that they're making so i think within the decision criteria i think on in terms of you know the uh, the vertical axis that you had in terms of price mm-hmm. it's almost you know how interchangeable do you think that is with value um so so we've got we've got uh, demand which is driven which can potentially be driven by value as well so um sure. and and again when when we come to electric cars in the uk um there's of course the discussion of you know how far can you get on uh, on one charge um probably a lot further than you can in, in la um but the other side of it is what actual value are you bringing? Uh, you know, cleaner air, um, uh, you know, question marks around the embodied carbon of an electric vehicle or its actual environmental impact because of mining of rare earth metals and, 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 and the reusability of these batteries and everything. So there's still a bit of a question mark on all that. But the, the actual willingness to play, the willingness to pay for that value is probably increasing at a greater rate than the willingness to pay for more luxury in a traditional SUV in the in in certain parts of the mm-hmm. UK at the very least. So there's almost that dimension that I'm trying to look at of how do we how do we bring that into um, the, the the canals the way we value certain canals and um, because there is a value to those assets. You know, when mm-hmm. they're not they're not assets that we're going to sell, but there's a value in maintaining those assets for a specific condition um, to enable people to, you know, f- fish, for example. There's there's people who, uh, you know, if if we don't have a certain area of the network available, you know, they they can't fish anymore, right? And, and that that becomes a real real issue. I mean, there's some there's some wonderful projects and some wonderful stories that I've not really been able to talk about, but you know the there are occasions where um you know i don't know have you have you heard of a program called peaky blinders yes 
I'm not familiar <laughs> with what it is. I've just heard the title. There's actually a film entitled Peaky Blinders, right? Yeah. Well, there's a there's a TV series which is uh, it has very it's it's basically set in Birmingham um, pre uh, post World War One. It's quite an interesting take on things. But there's what's interesting about the canals is there are some very there are some oddities on the canal. So one of the things is people aren't allowed to do magnetic fishing in the canals. Um, and that, and that's because on several occasions now, um, people have found unexploded, unexploded World War II devices. Uh, so, so it's like, okay, you don't want to take your, your child, uh, you know, magnetic fishing and on the canals, cause you might find an unexploded, um, World War II device. Um, and some people have actually taken those devices with them and, um, luckily it hasn't exploded and then they contacted the police because someone else had said that might be a bomb <laughs> you better watch out um but you know and then and then there's there's loads of things that that we do that have a value um so for example the river seven which uh, was famous in the past for for having a, a particular fish called shad and this mm-hmm. was fish that was sung about by Henry VIII. It was a very, it was a great delicacy in, in England. It was shipped around all over Europe because it was a famous fish. Um, the River Severn was then uh, weird. There were weirs, weirs built all over uh, River Severn. And that meant that these fish could no longer migrate up and mm-hmm. lay their eggs, which meant that the shad had disappeared from England by the 18th century. Mm. And and now there's a there's an EU fund, part-funded Canal River Trust river uh, river seven project to build uh, fish passes along the sides to allow these fish to migrate up there for the first time in hundreds of years so we're going to get um shad there again mm-hmm. and you know in the past there were whole communities that were built around fishing that and selling that all over the the country how do we put a value on on that being being brought back you know the investment case for for that project right. was 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 historically linked um, but it had a ha, has a natural angle to it as well. There's a, there's there's a there's a natural there, there's an element of nature in there as well, and and the value that that has. So, uh, you know, for me, it's no longer you know when I was in nuclear, it was about what's the levelized cost of electricity, and sure. how does that how does that compare with the cost of a wind turbine or or a traditional coal fire power plant, and what what elements of those uh drive the cost of a nuclear power plant well it's all in the upfront construction cost well what what variables drive the upfront construction cost well it's all the the various interlinking of activities that have to happen the very large components that have to be produced that only one or two suppliers in the world can do these large forgings um and then you're on a you know a very tight time scale between when you get planning permission when your design's approved and when you start putting that capital in and once you put that capital in you better get that power generation started as soon as possible because you're paying money on top of that right um all the financing costs so if that's what's driving it well let's make that a lot more simple let's make that smaller let's do them in um make it an option of you finance the first one once you've done the small one once you've done the first one small reactor is up and running you're starting to make money back, revenue back. So then you can decide whether you're going to build the second one there and you have a much simpler and smaller uh, financing associated with nuclear power plants when you make them small modular. You lose the economies of scale, but right. you probably get economies of multiple. So so there's those. that's a very traditional me- metric and a very a much more straightforward way of valuing 
a project compared with we have uh, we have the option to uh, re rebuild the Pontiskillet aqueduct in another part of the country. What value will that will that bring for us? Well, you know, I, I think in the United States we we've had programs where we have paid for cleaner air. We've paid for improving fisheries, and um, here in California, where I live, I mean, and most of the West, it's in fact where Christian lives. I mean, he's part of the Tennessee Valley Authority, and the whole place has been pushed up yep. by dams. And so there's there's dam there are quite a few dams in the United States that have done this the same kind of ecological harm that you're talking about, but there have been moves afoot to change that where people are, governments are, are spending money to move dams or to build ladders around dams or to basically take the dam out and, and let the river flow. And I imagine we could quantify that by figuring out, um, well, how much, how much uh, did we spend to get these kind of fish back to a population and you could probably work out the fish and you could probably work out the quantity. You could probably work out the number of miles or square miles that were involved in a, in a project like that. And I think you could probably wrestle with that, but to the whole point about how you would figure that out is you have a whole bunch of data that you're gonna to have to collect mm. over a variety of projects. I mean, that is a, it's a very interesting problem, but it's also very, it's got so many facets to it, you know. It's, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's, which which elements do you collect and everything? I mean, right. You know, I mean, I mean, I guess, you know, the the value of a canal in the in, inner waterways in England are, are totally different to, you know, the Suez Canal or, or the Panama Canal. It's not, right. you know, they're not the same. But you know, I know that New York, um, the New York canals are being there's there's heavy investments in in, in those canals to to re to regenerate and re-stimulate uh, or stimulate the, um, the the towns that run alongside those right. canals. Yeah, that's a, that is a resurgence. And so you could look, to, you could point towards that. Yeah. That would be yeah. something. And yeah. um, as it applies to fisheries, I mean, yep. there are several, several projects in Washington State, Oregon, and California in which people have entertained or are, are actually making it easier for fish to go further upstream. So mm. uh, here in, in here in the U.S. West, they've made Lewiston, Idaho is actually a seaport. And the way they've done that is they've put a series of locks, you know, like they have in, in um, the canal system. They put a series of locks to get the Snake River connected to the Columbia River to let the Lewiston is uh, it's several hundred miles inland in a, a very arid part of the world. Right. And so in order to get the fish there, you'd have to put some steps around that. Now, I don't know what they've done specifically for Lewiston to make that, you know, to reinvigorate the fish there, but there's several places along the West Coast here in the United States where they're entertaining ideas like that. And I don't know how many have actually been, you know, engaged. Maybe Christian, I know the TVA has done a, um, a massive restructuring of most of where you live and in, in hundreds of miles in every direction. What do you know anything like that for that might that Amrit might be able to look at and use? That's a good a good question. So so Alo so so it goes through um, most of Tennessee and, and northern Alabama. The Tennessee River kind of cuts down through North Alabama. And Alabama is the state in the United States for biodiversity. Um, Pretty, I think it was, you know, I've, as a, when I was young, I would fish dams. Uh, it's a good place to catch fish. 
but I'm not aware of any ecologic, you know, any particular fish that were disrupted in the same way that the shad were due to dams. Uh, there's quite a few fish and they seem like they, whatever body water you put them in, they seem to do pretty well. So it's, uh, and, and there's, there's so many different species of all sorts of, uh, you know, animals in Alabama that, um, that, and some of which don't really live anywhere else, um, that, you know, I, I think if you lost one or two due to that, it just probably wouldn't be noticed there are just so many. Um, I think that's, so, um, I like, think... like frog, frogs with chameleon type properties and things yeah. like that, you know, things yeah, that you I, don't really hear about. There's been, um, I mean, I had, um, I had a marine biologist on, on one of my earlier episodes uh, on my podcast and, one of the things that I've never heard about when we've talked about biodiversity loss, but there have been some species of fish, for example, that have thrived due to the, due to the impact, at least in the short to medium term um, of the change. Right. It's almost like a change in the balance of power. So, so they, they've, they've actually thrived in those conditions. So I guess, you know, you can, it's, it's difficult to measure when you've only got that one point to, to kind of say, okay, that's what had an impact um and and not being able to understand what are the knock-on impacts if you change it again well here back to the point about your your uh, yeah so like in alabama i mean people are not environmentally sensitive so typically not as much as they are say in california so people don't you know, don't hear about it as much people don't notice the the big thing people in alabama do is they they are buying up um, wilderness areas so that they can, they can preserve them but right. That's one thing here about in Alabama. Well, here in the American West, they, there have been several attempts to revitalize the salmon populations. And, and then the salmon populations were historically part of the Native American diets. And so there's been uh, the, the famous Judge Bolt ruling that actually made it so that the non-native people had certain blocks of time that they could fish the salmon so that they wouldn't overfish them. And then there's also problems about because of the dams, how far upriver these the salmon can manage to make it anymore. Mm. So, I, I'll I'll do some digging. I'm pretty sure I, I can find some information for you about what we what we've spent in the United States for um, for trying to save the salmon and maybe a few other species. It's, it's a big thing out here in the West because we are more environmentally sensitive out here. And we and also back to another point that kind of is, is a little tangent to what you're talking about, but not much is. We spent a great deal of money here in California, much to the chagrin of the automakers, uh, by making our environmental standards quite a bit higher than they are in any other place in the country. So if you come to the US and you buy a car, there's, there's a California standard and there's the standard for the rest of the country. Hmm. And what that had the effect of doing is that pollution on, on balance, you know, the particles per million that you could measure uh, the various noxious gases and particles in the air is, is fallen quite a bit over the years. And mm -hmm. so you could actually figure out the investment people have made, governments have made, and the industry has to, had, had to make to actually sell in California to affect the, the cleanliness. And part of what you're offering with the canals, I mean, I've been on the canal before too, and it's a fabulous place to run on, is, um, is you're paying for the aesthetics of the thing. Now here in California, by the way, we have a canal that the, the story here in Southern California is that Southern California is a desert. The average rainfall here is 15 inches where I'm sitting. And if you go out just another 20 miles to the north, it's the average rainfall is six inches. 
right. it's not hard enough to get all of your rain total in, in two days here. Yep. And so um, to circumvent that, what we did here in California is we, uh, we had um, Mulholland. I don't know if you've heard of him, but Mulholland went up basically along with the powers that be. And we basically tapped into Mono Lake up in the north. And we, we basically have a pipe that runs from Mono Lake down to Southern California. Hmm. And so we have this canal that's not nearly as pretty as yours because you, your canals are often in the countryside or even, even when they're in the city, they're, they're surrounded by green. They have a canal that's running through the desert. You know, it kind of looks like a little miniature version of the Suez Canal. Right. And these little tiny... Is this the one that's been covered with, uh, or the lake's been covered with um, black um, yes, holes, yeah, that, floating yeah, holes? That, those waters empty into that lake. Yep. That right, lake is right. 10 miles from me, right over that way. Right, right. Yeah. Yes, exactly right. Right. In no, fact, I mean... Right below the Hollywood sign, there's there's Lake Hollywood, and that that's another one of the lakes that that's filled up from this reservoir. So, right. that those those pipes, that 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 canal system. So yeah, there there's some there's so some in, in Alabama. What was? Uh, oh sorry, in Alabama, what was uh, what I remember about waterways is there is a waterway that stretches all the way to the the, the Gulf of Mexico. And it was uh, there was a lot of rivers in Alabama, but none of them fed directly all the way from the north all the way into the Gulf of Mexico, until they um, they did some you know excavation to build a, a waterway and, and and connect it, and that was completed in 1984. Mm. Um, the the railroads didn't like it because it competed with them. Mm. They initially had projected a lot of demand at that time, um, but it it uh, was supposed to compete with the Mississippi to some extent. Uh, it, it is used to take um, launch vehicles that are built in Decatur, Alabama mm. to Cape Canaveral. Um, so it is big enough to carry like, large launch vehicles, Atlas V, Delta IVs. Um, it was originally projected to, to carry, you know, maybe 10, 25 percent of Mississippi, but it, it carries only like 2 percent of the Mississippi's mm. uh, a cargo capacity so it well uh, the uh, way and predicted the amount of demand for for what would what would uh, it would be using but uh but it was and it was exerted at the time it's sort of a big pork barrel project you know uh, you know uh, uh, nixon was trying to uh, back in the day in the early 70s was trying to win southern states and so he committed a lot of money to the project to so people would vote for him <laughs> mm. yeah I mean, uh, there's some really fascinating two, two billion dollar project Wow. <laughs> wow. When you, when you look yeah. through, um, yeah. I've looked through some of the archives that we have in, at, at the trust and, you know, you, you come across some fun, amazing stuff and um, there's, there are these compulsory um, land purchase um, signed into legislation. Um, so you've got this old style, you know, 18th century legislation papers that, that talk about compulsory, compulsory purchase in this area. And it's, you know, hand signed and all this kind of stuff. And it just, you, you just think about how, how different the times were then where, you know, it's just, well, we're just going to, we're just going to carve this into the ground and, and fill it with water and then get, get from A to B. And that will be how everything goes for the next however many years, because we're at the forefront of engineering. Right. And then within a few years, it's like, well, we've got this massive steam engine. Um, why don't we just use this and lay, put rail track down everywhere 
I mean, there's, there's some fascinatingly weird innovations that were developed where, you know, uh, uh, sort of, I guess, a, a last story, but we've got this one thing um, in the northwest of England called the Anderton Boat Lift. Yes, I've seen and that. It's, it's, it's an incredible, yeah. incredible piece of engineering for the time, where essentially it is a giant bathtub that lowers you down to the river level because the, the canal that was coming up from Stoke basically ended up at a different level to the river below. And they were saying, should we have a series of locks? No, it's going to be too expensive. How do we get down there? It's going to be too sharp an angle. Well, let's just get a boat in the in, in this uh, bathtub and lower it down to this level. And it, it's just when you when you and it only goes, I think, two miles an hour, I think maximum. I don't think it's very fast. But at the time, it was considered like a roller coaster. So people would go on it and just like <laughs> almost like they're surfing and just like scary times when you're in the 19th century and you're going at two miles an hour on a lift so yeah it's pretty amazing technology it had a bunch of counterweights to let it work to, to work that way right yeah 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 and it's, it's all changed now it's all it's all modern control systems plc systems so right. yeah, yeah it's all wow, electrically driven now so uh yeah you can still go on it so uh, if you're ever in if you're ever in the country that would be one of the ones that i would i would recommend you go on well, I'd like to see that because, and they also have some of the um, some of the parts that are still there from the original the original mechanism, right? They have a little yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely, um, and that's the one interesting thing with a lot of this. Um, there's a lot of um, a lot of original features all over the place, and you know, you see if you go into Manchester and and you see them, you know, dewater a section of the canal. Mm -hmm. um you can see you can still see the original stonemason markings on them which basically mark out uh this is how much work i've done this is how um, many bricks you have to pay me for so you know it's it's uh you know 200 200 years old why don't you describe the uh the engine boat lift a little bit more in more detail for the uh, the people that haven't aren't as familiar with it as, as you are um, well, we've got we've got the um, there's there's some really good videos on the Canal and River Trust uh, YouTube channel as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, we've got one on the Anderton boat lift, and um, so uh, so there was a lot of demand in America for for pottery from mm -hmm. from England, um, and because of that demand, uh, the potteries are actually located in Stoke, which is near near the West Midlands, so in the centre of the country. Um, so you'd need to get them to a port. To get to a port, um, you'd need to try and get there mo mostly by horse and carriage. And you mm -hmm. can you can imagine traveling by horse and carriage with a load of pottery. It's not going to mm -hmm. end up in the best condition by the time you get to the port. Um, so one of the drivers for building the canal was uh, from Stoke up to the northwest of England to the ports, famous ports around um, around Liverpool. Um, were uh, were to transport pottery now because of the way the land contours and everything um you know canals evolved over time but in, originally they tried to contour them around uh, around the land and everything so that they didn't have to do any action um and by the time they got up to the river uh, it connects the river weaver which the river weaver then goes out to sea um and the canal uh, was at a higher level and the rivers below and because of the gradient and the cost of bringing in locks um, 
it was the Weaver Company, actually. It was a very, very famous company in the northwest of England um, who, who basically sponsored the boat lift. And essentially what you have is, um, I mean, you've got a picture over your, your shoulder there, Doug. Yeah. Um, and that just reminded me of the Anderton boat lift because right, it's yeah. essentially almost like this big um, scaffolding almost. So right. big scaffolding, uh, black Victorian paint, um, and what would happen is at the top level, you would have uh, you would have a boat, two boats probably that could go in side by side. So we have very narrow, they're very narrow boats. Mm-hmm. Uh, they go in side by side, but at the same time, underneath at the bottom level, you would need two boats to come in at the bottom level as well. Mm-hmm. And then what would happen is the water. I think there were some. Uh, it was controlled by the water levels basically within the. Um, some kind of casing they would have water levels mm-hmm. and, and on the one side they would lower the water level and on the other side they would increase the water level and by gravitational force they would basically switch the two <laughs> and at some point you would meet the other one but you couldn't see them because um, the sides the sides came up quite high yeah. um, but it would it would literally just be by by sort of a natural it was just a natural lift and and you know very basic principle Right. Uh, you know, very, very basic principle that, that the Greek, ancient Greeks knew, knew about, right. um, but a very innovative solution to a, to a difficult problem of gradient and um, how much more of the land do you want to carve out? How right. much more do you want to spend on that? So it was quite ingenious. It is, yeah. Well, Amrit, why don't you give us the, um, your website so we can come and look at the, um, the Canal Trust and, 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 and for the, the listeners and and viewers right now can you give us your website so that we can yeah find so, out more about it so uh, you can search for the canal and river trust on on youtube and we've got some good really good interesting videos on there on some of our challenges and, and what we've been doing um you can also do walkthroughs on there of, of the actual canal so there's some quite nice virtual tours on there um and you can go to the website which is the canal canal river um, and then also I'm going to plug my podcast as well, which is the, the cost of podcasts, um, the cost of everything. Right. Um, you can find me in cost of podcast on Twitter. Uh, and, and, you know, I had, had, had Christian on, on the show a few, a uh, few weeks back. He's a great guest. And then I'll get Doug on. Well, very soon. well done. Uh, <laughs> well done podcast. Yeah. We had, you have Doug on Doug has some unique unique and interesting perspectives as well. So. Yeah. I want, I want to, I do want to hear more about this sort of 4d, um, I, I relate it to econometrics quite a lot, so um, right. you know, apologies if that's a. Uh, oh no, not, no, not it's correct. A form but... of econometrics, but uh, we start with four D, and then we go to five for when we add time, and then eventually seven, ten, whatever we need. So uh, there be, I'll, I'll show you some stuff on it. We'll communicate. I'll, I'll I'll pass you my email through the uh, LinkedIn. Brilliant. Yeah. Fascinating. Right. Kristen, yeah, so, uh, the, uh, hey, Emma, it's great, great to have you on and, uh, and and learn more about what you do. So you you yes. heard about what I did and now uh, before, and now it's great to hear have you on our podcast and hear about what you do. So thank you. No, I really enjoyed it. All right, everybody. Um, remember, Christian's book's coming out on November. Tell him, Christian, November when? November third through Amazon. If if you, right. you can't wait till then, uh, Barnes and Noble says they'll have it October twenty or so. Go ahead and pre-order today. Avoid the rush on election day. This official early state, but um, these are this is author author. This is an author copy that I'm holding up. Uh, I get uh, a few dozen of these to uh, ahead of time. So 
Excellent, Christian. Well, Amrit, Christian, thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for watching. And that's our show. Thank you so much. Smart Remarks, Howard States. is brought to you by Me, Inc., the discoverers of and world leader in multidimensional economics. Please visit our website at www.meevaluators.com. You can address your questions to the show at info at meevaluators.com. You can follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash M-E-E-L-L-C. You can follow us on Instagram at www.instagram.com slash meevaluators. On Twitter at at me4d. And you can follow me personally on Twitter at at Douglas underscore Howard.